I want to begin this morning by telling you about a man named Martin. Martin was born on November 10th, 1483 in Alban, Germany. He was the son of a middle-class silver miner. He was destined by his parents to grow up and be a lawyer, to study law and to give himself to that. Yet after many years of struggling with the vocation, he ultimately gave himself to the monastery and became an Augustinian monk. And he would give himself tirelessly to the study of the monastics and to other mystic writers from the Middle Ages. And as he continued in his studies, he found himself often tormented with the truth that God hated him. He would wrestle often in his lectures in preparation. And it was particularly as he studied to prepare teaching the book of Romans that he was gripped with chapter 1 and verse 17 where it speaks of the righteousness of God. And as he would wrestle with that, he often struggled with God's justice. Martin knew himself to be a sinner. He understood himself to be deserving of God's wrath. But Martin was not alone in his fear of God and fear of death. In fact, the whole of Christendom and all of really the whole world was captivated, caught up in the idea of death. Following the Black Plague and other devastating diseases, death was at the door of every family and at every home. And it was during this time that the Church of Rome would utilize people's regularly thinking about death to promote their ideology and to captivate these souls. And the question for for Martin remained, Would there ever be freedom or relief? For Martin, he never knew a day where God did not hate him. He felt as if he never had done enough. There was never enough confession, never enough penance, never enough for Martin. So he wrestled, struggled. Could I really know that I'm saved? Is it possible to know that without a shadow of a doubt that I am loved by God? Is it possible? How can I be assured that I am saved? Well, friends, that's the question that we're going to spend the next five weeks, uh, Lord willing, answering. I want to begin this morning a five-part series on the Reformation. Now this morning you might be like, the Reformation of what? What is the Reformation? I have no idea what that is. And that's okay. That's good. That's kind of part of why we're going to spend five weeks thinking about the Reformation. And to be clear, I'm not preaching five topical sermons on the Reformation. And the real reason is, is because I think the Reformers would hate that. That is, the Reformers of the church actually sought to get people back to the Scripture and not to some man-made teaching. So the last thing I want to do over the next five weeks is to kind of cobble together really good sermons that have nothing to do with the Bible, but have to do with like historical lessons. So if you're afraid that like I'm going to preach five his- history lessons for you, um, that's not going to happen. All right, I-, I-, I struggle with these because of that very reason. Like I just want to preach the Bible. Like I am not creative. I can't come up with sermon topics on my own. And so I just want to show you the Bible this morning. But I want to give you some backstory. Um, so this year's 2017. If you didn't know, 
Um, and uh, it's almost over. So if you if you haven't started writing 2017 on your on your stuff, you know you need to get ready. Um, and uh, so 2017, what happened was uh, 500 years ago this month, on October the 31st of 1517. Uh, a man named Martin Luther, that Martin that we began with, Martin Luther, that Augustinian monk, he was struggling. He was struggling because a guy came into town, a guy by the name of Tetzel. Not Pretzel, but Tetzel, right? So you can remember that name. And Mr. Tetzel worked for the, for the Pope. He worked for the Cardinals. And he had a responsibility to sell indulgences. And you might say, well, what the heck's an indulgence? Well, a part of Roman Catholic teaching is, is uh, purgatory. That when you die, you go to a place called purgatory. And there you work off the sins that have yet to be worked off. Uh, the, so, so in Roman Catholic theology, the only time that you are in a perfect state of grace that is in perfect holiness is at your baptism. At your baptism. And after that, you begin to spiral out of control into sin. And so if you're a baby and baptized and you, you die right there on the spot, you go straight to heaven, no purgatory. Right? But, but for everyone else, you go. And the only other place you can get sprung out of uh, purgatory is by the, the, the church, the Pope particularly, and the cardinals coming together and saying, you're a saint. And then we're going to make you a saint and you can get out of purgatory. And so as you understand this teaching of purgatory, that you have to go and your loved ones are in purgatory suffering. And a guy comes along and begins to tell you, hey, listen, if you just give some money to the church, guess what will happen? It'll get some years off of your loved one's time in purgatory. You can buy your way out of purgatory. And so Tetzel was kind of a little sneaky guy, and he came into town, and they were selling these indulgences. And they used to have a little saying, as the coin in the coffer would ring, a soul in purgatory would spring. And that is that what he would say is that if you give money, your folks that are in hell can go free or purgatory can go free. And this was all a finance project to build the St. Peter's Basilica. So that, that, that really what is the heart of the Roman Catholic Church today was financed by the souls and the torture of people in the 15th and 16th century. And so Tetzel comes into town and Luther responds to this by saying, yo, what the heck? And so he nails, he puts together 95 statements, 95 theses, and he goes down to Wittenberg Castle and he nails it on there and he's like in protest to the selling of indulgences. And thus many scholars believe that this was the beginning then, the kind of official date. Although really the Reformation didn't start until 1518 when a German printer got a hold of the 95 Theses and began to print them in German and distribute them across Germany. And people began to think again about the Bible at the heart of the Reformation in 1517 was that understanding of justification by faith alone, not by works, but by faith. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to give ourselves to what's called the five solas of the Reformation. That is five sort of summary statements uh, that help encapsulate um, what the Reformers taught. So I'll give you three names. You can forget about them as soon as I tell them to you. But if you want to read more, I encourage you to know three guys, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin. 
Those three men were the, the reformers. But, but, but just to know that those three men did not do it alone. They did it, of course, by the work of God. But there were many others, many even before Martin Luther, that were kind of plowing the soil, many who would give their lives to see the church reformed. And so the five solas that we're going to consider are going to be sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola great gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. And then finally, sola dea gloria. Oh, box, good phrase. To God alone be glory. And so central to the Reformation and central to our time is going to be thinking about how can I be saved from God's wrath? How can I be saved from the wrath of God? Where do I go and find the answers to that out? Well, friends, that is what the Reformation taught. We don't go to official teachings of church. We don't go to some pope somewhere, but we go to the Scriptures. And it's our understanding of the Scriptures that will determine the hope that we have. That is our understanding of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, of justification by faith alone, ultimately is revealed in the Scriptures. And so what we want to do and give ourselves this morning is to consider that question. Now you might have a question as we begin this morning like, why would I shepherd you in this way? Why would we spend five weeks of valuable preaching time thinking about something that happened 500 years ago? Like, what the heck? Like, you know, why would we do that? Well, number one, we are Protestants, which means that we are still protesting the Roman Catholic Church today. We are still protesting that justification is by faith alone. We are still protesting against papal authority. We're still protesting that no, you are not the official church. That no, you are not the one who has the keys to the kingdom. Why would we spend time? Why would we want to learn about these things? Well, brothers and sisters, I think... Scripture alone and understanding that Scripture alone is just as helpful today as we see churches confused about what church is. If you've been in church for a number of years, you know the worship wars that went on you know, during the 1980s and 90s, really was going on for a little bit before that, and really has been going on since. You know, through those worship wars, fundamentally the issue at heart was sola scriptura. Scripture alone will dictate our faith and practice. And as a congregation, I regularly and often want to point you not to me and my teaching, not to some document somewhere, but to the Scriptures for our rule of life. That is, everything we do needs to be in here. And if it's not in here, we don't do it. We don't do it. And so we're going to consider this morning in 2 Timothy a really kind of pinnacle verse. If, if there's a verse that someone's going to preach on Scripture, it's 2 Timothy 3.16. And so here we are, 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, page 996 in the Pew Bibles. I just invite you to open that and look at it as I read beginning in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, or the person of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is writing a letter here to to Timothy, his young mentee in the faith. Uh, Timothy was a younger man, someone who Paul had spent a lifetime mentoring Uh, Mentoring so that one day Timothy could go off and pastor a church in Ephesus. uh, A church that Paul himself planted. And and Timothy here, as he was uh, going into the church and as he was pastoring that church, Paul sends him this letter. Now this letter is also the final letter that Paul would ever write. The final one that he would ever write under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so much of this letter is kind of final words. The final sayings of Paul, if you will. The final things that Paul would leave. And what was it? What were were the advice that he would give to this young pastor? What kind of things would he say? Hey, Timothy, you need to make sure you do this. You need to make sure you give yourself to this. Hey, Timothy, make sure you, you go about doing this. As we ask those questions, one of the things that becomes so clear is Paul says, stick with the word. Timothy, if you do anything in ministry, if you want to succeed in ministry, do one thing. Stick to the word. Timothy, you're going to be tempted to do a lot of things. You're going to be pulled in many directions to focus on these and that and that and this. But stick to the word, Timothy. Timothy, if you will just stick to the word, if you'll just give yourself to the regular preaching of God's word, if you'll just give yourself to to the scriptures, to preaching and to prayer, to praying the Bible, to reading and studying the Bible, Timothy, if you'll just give yourself to that, everything else will, will work itself out. And so the main exhortation of this passage this morning comes to us very clearly in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in the word. Stick to the word. Continue in it. Remain in it. Don't leave the word. And so this morning, the purpose of this scripture and the point of this passage is that scripture alone is the authoritative word of God. That scripture alone is authoritative in matters of Christian doctrine and practice. Therefore, we, as God's people, must submit ourselves to God by obeying His Word above human tradition. That is, this morning we want to see God's Word rise above what we think we should be doing, rise above what others think we should be doing, and submit ourselves to the the clear and authoritative teaching of God's Word. Central to the Reformation and central to the Bible is the authority of the Word of God. What Martin and the rest of the Reformers sought to do is to reclaim the truth that the Bible has authority over your life because it is God's Word. And so this morning, as you heard Nathan read, and as I read a moment ago, you needed to hear that as if God Himself Jesus of Nazareth was speaking that word to you. Because it comes with the same authorities that Jesus was here and was reading. God's word is authoritative. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to consider that Scripture alone has authority over our lives and to consider the practical nature in which Scripture has for us. So we want to reclaim a robust understanding of the authority of Scripture in our lives and most importantly... To see it worked out in the life of our congregation. So we don't want to be like, hey, guys, like, you know, 500 years ago really loved, loved the Bible. 
But we want to consider what does that mean for us to say we love the Bible? What does that look like in our worship services? What does that look like in our evangelism? What does that look like from simple things to the way we spend our resources? What does the Bible have to say about these things? And so Paul outlines for us four reasons why we should continue with the authority of Scripture for faith and practice. Four reasons why we should stick to the Scriptures. First, consider your history. Secondly, consider Scripture's ability. Third, consider Scripture's origin. And then fourth and finally, consider Scripture's practical nature. Number one, consider your history. Look with me in verses 14 and 15 very quickly. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remember where you learned the Bible. Stick with what you know, Timothy. Stick with what is true. Stick with what you know is true, Timothy. Verse 14, consider or continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And as you consider this, I want to begin this morning by asking sort of a, a question that kind of seems to be running counter of this whole sermon. The whole point of Sola Scriptura, and that is, what about teachers and tradition? So when you hear Scripture alone, does that mean like, oh, we can't have anything other than the Bible? Well, clearly, I hope you understand that, that, that I don't believe that because I had you read our statement of faith. Because if, if we truly believe the Bible alone, then we wouldn't have no statement of faith. Right? And I know maybe, you, maybe that's you this morning. You think, man, we don't need those man-made documents. We don't need that stuff. But friend, I think Timothy is being taught here that that's okay. One of the things you don't want to take away from this is to say, like, teaching is bad. Or that, you know, when we read the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed of 325 or 381, that that's like somehow bad. No, no, what we understand is that all of that good teaching that we have in those, what we have in our statement of faith, all of it submits itself to Scripture. So in, a, in Roman Catholicism, Scripture is at equal authority with the magisterium and with church tradition. So if you think about the Roman Catholics' understanding of authority as a three-legged stool, a three-legged stool, Scripture is one leg, the magisterium, the official teaching, the official teaching of the magisterium, the papal bulls, and then the church tradition. You know, kind of, we've always done it that way. And so we're going to continue to do it that way. All are on equal authority and footing with the Scriptures. Now as you consider the Protestant understanding, what we believe is a pillar. There is only one thing, and that is the Scriptures. That is everything else in our official teachings, everything in our statement of faith, ultimately submits itself to Scripture. And so when we find something out of step or out of line, we remove it. Just as we did a number of weeks ago when we removed from our church covenant a false teaching. That, that abstinence from alcohol is a biblical command. That is not true. There is no biblical command in the Bible. And so we said, look, we're going to set that aside and, and use biblical language to abstain from anything that will harm our bodies. As Paul says clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so what we're doing there is clarifying that we want to submit ourselves to the scriptures in our teaching. 
That doesn't mean that traditions are bad. That doesn't mean just be, you know, that the things we do are, are bad because we've always done it that way. That's not necessarily bad, right? Although it's one of the things I hate hearing the most, by the way. So if you really want to get under my skin, if you really want to boil me up really good, if you want to get me going, just say, well, we've always done it that way. And I'll be like, well, I, I wasn't there, and so I have no idea. And what I often respond is, is what Jesus say about it? Because I don't really care what you've been doing. I want to know what Jesus says about that, right? You may have been doing it right. You may be good. That Praise God. But we, again, want to submit it to the scriptures. Is what we're doing biblical? Is what we're doing what the Bible says? And, and, and so we want to understand that there is a place for teachers and tradition. There is a place for that in our lives as Protestants. So, so we don't want to just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we want to submit everything to the teaching of God's Word. Notice also what he says here, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He points him to his childhood because his mother and grandmother were integral in his growth. His grandma often would point him to the scriptures. His mom was regularly reading the Bible to him to show him the way of faith. I remember a number of years ago, I was at a conference. John Piper, a pretty famous preacher in America, uh, was asked a question. The question was this, John, why do you believe the Bible is true? For which he responded, because my mama told me it was true. Right. And this is a world class scholar, biblical. I mean, got some serious degrees and like, you know, loves Jesus and the Bible. And his response wasn't some Ph.D. dissertation, but because mama said it was true. And that's what Paul's doing here. So you grandma said the Bible is true and you better believe it. Right. Submit yourself to the Bible because you've known that to be true. And so Paul's exhortation to us today is that we are to stick with the Scriptures as we consider our history. Now, I know some of you this morning came to faith later in life, and so you don't have that sort of rich history. You know, you maybe don't have a parent in your life who was preaching the gospel to you, but that's okay. That's okay, but maybe some of you do. And you can just be encouraged by that. Um, I'm often encouraged by the faith of my grandmother as I consider her resolve to follow Jesus. And how I want to follow Jesus the way she does. You know? And so as you consider that, consider that the, the faithfulness of those who taught you the word of God. Consider the faithfulness of those preachers who, who regularly lived before you. As you heard Nathan read in 1 Timothy where Timothy is exhorted to live a godly life so that others will follow you in that way. Well, it leads us here to the, our second point, uh, which is that we need to consider Scripture's ability Consider Scripture. Stick with the Scriptures because it's able to do something. Let's look what it's able to do. Verse 15, he writes, And, and from, how, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which, that is the sacred writings, the, most likely the Old Testament, but we could obviously understand all of the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We see something here about the sufficiency of Scripture for salvation. The Bible is not a textbook on humanity. I mean, in all parts of humanity. Like, so, for example, there's nothing in the Bible about atoms and splitting, right? Molecules and how they work, right? It's not a scientific textbook on, you know, biology or chemistry, right? We know that there are many things in the Bible that... We're just kind of left to not know. We don't know the particulars about how God created the universe. 
We just know he like said, here it is. It became, right? He spoke it and it was created. We don't know what it looked like that day, though we could speculate. Right? We don't know that, right? So the Bible it doesn't have a manual for like all of your problems in life. You know, how am I going to fix my car kind of thing. But we do understand the Bible is sufficient to tell us everything we need to know about God, about ourselves, and about the world we live in. The Bible is sufficient to tell us everything that we need to know about God, about ourselves, and about the world we live in. So that we are not confused about God and who He is. That He has revealed Himself. And so the sufficiency of Scripture Scripture teaches us here in this passage that the Bible alone is able to say that is it contains the information you need to have to repent of your sins and to trust in the finished work of Christ. But also that follows the sufficiency of Scripture is the clarity of Scripture, or the perspicuity of Scripture. That is that Scripture is clear and understandable. If it is able to save, if it contains the knowledge by which you are able through faith in Christ to be saved, right? So, so, so hang with me here. Put your thinking brains on here for a moment, right? So if it is sufficient, it must be clear in order for you to understand it. Because if it was not understandable, then it would not be sufficient to save. That is, if you could open the Bible and you read the words on the page and you have no idea what's going on, then it doesn't really do you much good. But thanks be to God, God has revealed His Word clearly and plainly. That is, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Now, look, uh, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's tough, right? You know, uh, it's some tough stuff in there. All right, there's some hard things, right? There, there's some things in the Bible that Christians have wrestled with for 2,000 years. Even Peter himself testifies at the end of 2 Peter that, like, Paul's stuff's hard stuff. Like, I don't even understand him sometimes. I don't know what he's talking about, right? So that doesn't mean that you understand everything clearly. No, we, we look at the Scriptures with, with eyes, right, dimly lit. We don't fully understand everything. But what we do know is sufficient to save us. And so this morning, you can have the confidence in all the world that if you can read, right, and you don't have to be a good, and if you can hear, you can be saved. Because you see, that was the big secret of the Roman Catholic Church. That was the big secret. If the people cannot understand what we're saying, if the people cannot read the scriptures, then they will not be able to be saved. We cared more, they cared more about the coffers, the offering plate, than they cared about the eternal souls under their care. And so they kept the Bible in Latin. It was never translated in a language you would know. Even the priest who would do the Mass didn't even know what they were saying. People were chained because they didn't know. But thanks be to God, we have a word that we can hear clearly today that you can understand what I'm saying, maybe. you know. I try to be clear because the Bible is clear. So Paul makes very clear the ability of Scripture to transform lives. 
And we don't have a lot of time to spend on each of these, but I just want to show you very clearly that Scripture is able to save. It is sufficiently clear to bring about salvation. Luther himself came to understand this truth as he reflected later in life upon what had happened in the Reformation. Luther said, I suppose, take me for example, Luther wrote, I suppose indulgences and all the papists, but never by force. I opposed them all, he says. But he never did it by force. He never got a gun, right? There weren't guns, but he didn't get one, right? Uh, I simply did this. Listen, what, listen to Luther here. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with Philip, Philip Melanchthon, his buddy, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such a damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. See, Luther just gave himself to the word. He just, he just gave himself to the scriptures. That's all he did. He, that's all that happened. I mean, if you think about as we consider historically what really blew people's mind was this dude by the name of Gutenberg creates a printing press by chance. And people start printing up Bibles. They didn't come up with some clever evangelistic strategy, some track system. No, all they did was print Bibles and printed as many as they could. And God did his work. The word will shine a light where there is darkness. Friends, you can know beyond a shadow of doubt the darkness that maybe is in the, the life of your loved one. The word, a word of God alone will bring life where there is death. And so it is with us. We want to give ourselves to the scriptures. We want to give ourselves to know the scriptures and to understand the scriptures. To grow in our knowledge because we know that the Bible alone contains the sufficient knowledge of God. And so that leads us to the number three, consider the Scripture's origin. Why should we st stick to the Scriptures? Why should we give ourselves to the Scriptures? Why all this talk about the Bible? Like, my goodness, why, why, why? Well, number three, verse 16, consider Scripture's origin. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All Scripture is breathed out by God, or all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture here is theopneumatos, which means God breathed. God spoke. The Scripture is God's Word. The word inspiration causes a bit of confusion among us when we understand that Inspiration, we often will use it in this way, you know, Shakespeare was inspired to write uh, very poetic words. Well, that's not what we understand that the New Testament writers doing or the Old Testament. It wasn't as if they were inspired, like, you know, oh, this is going to be creative, this is going to be good. No, what we want to understand is that God used human authors to communicate his divine truth. And that all Scripture contains God's Word. So you'll notice that some might wrongly talk about Scripture, that the truth is in the Scriptures. That somewhere in the Bible is the truth. Which makes you believe, and, and they do believe, that then there are parts that are not true. 
that is, contained therein. And the question then becomes, well, who gets to decide what's in and what's out? Who, who's like the one who's in charge? Like, like, let me talk to him. Oh, okay. Right? You begin to see it. So what we believe about the Bible is that God used the writers, not all that they wrote, because Paul wrote other stuff. Peter wrote probably other letters. So it wasn't everything. So, so today, for example, if we were to get a, a, a newsflash to come across, we have found a, a, an authentic uh, scroll, uh, a letter to the Laodiceans. Right? Remember, Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans. And we were to get that, and we'd begin it, we would not submit to it as authoritative teaching. Why? Because not all that they wrote was inspired. It's only what is Christ and gospel-centered. The only things that were in the canon of Scripture are those things which God has spoken through His Word. God has spoken it. So what we want to understand here in this, pa- in this section here is that the Bible's origin is not man, but God. The, the Bible is authoritative because it is God's Word to man. Not man's word about God. So I want you to say it again. The Bible is God's word to man, not man's word about God. So everything in the Bible is what God wanted to say. Nothing more, nothing less. That's why Jesus says not, no, no dot or iota. right? No, not the smallest little minicule of the old or the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet will be put aside. Every bit of it is authoritative. Every part and participle of God's word is his word. This means that the language of the scriptures, the choice of the words, the grammatical construction, the syntactical structure, items included and excluded, everything about the language of the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek, all of it is inspired by God. That's why you'll hear preachers talking about like this verb and that word and all these kind of things, because we are submitting ourselves not only to the words on the page, but the way the words are written. Because they have meaning to them. Every little thing in the Bible has meaning. And we also notice, look at verse 16, all Scripture. Now I know some of us can be slow. Some of us can be, uh, you know, this takes us a little while. All Scripture. All Scripture. I'll say it Every piece of Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Which means that there's not pieces and parts that we can lay aside. There's not like, you know, the Old Testament that rarely gets crunched open. You know, you hear it crunching open when you, when you turn there in your Bible, right? No, all of the Bible is God's word to his, to his church. All of it. That means all of it. That means Leviticus. That means Lamentations. That means Revelation. Everything is written and every part is authoritative to the church. And all of it is breathed by the breath of God. As Peter writes in 2 Peter, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Thanks be to God. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God spoke the Word of God, and the Word became flesh. This means uh, that the Bible is authoritative. That to disobey the Bible is to disobey God. To obey the Scriptures is to obey God. That everything contained herein is God. God has revealed Himself in His Word. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which our Confession of Faith is built upon, uh, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. The author, therefore, it is to be and the, the author thereof and therefore is to be received because it is the Word of God. That is, we obey the Bible. Not because mama told us so. We obey the Bible because God said so. And that's, the, that's, what, that's what this is about. The authority of Scripture to tell us what is good and what is not. The authority of Scripture to speak into our life and say, this is good for you, go there. And this is bad for you, don't go there. You know, it's often how we think about sin. We always think God saying don't do that is because God is like the giant joy kill up in heaven. Like, he doesn't want us to have fun, and so he, he takes things. No, God forbids things because he knows where sin takes you is death. The goal of sin is to destroy your soul, to, to completely kill you, to take every ounce of joy and happiness from you. So the Bible tells us. God reveals himself to us. One of the implications of the authority of Scripture that became evident during the Reformation was the transformation of the church's architecture. There no longer was an altar. The altar was put away, and it was changed into a communion table. No longer was Jesus sacrificed during the Mass, but rather he was remembered in communion. The furniture began to change no longer was the pulpit put out of sight, but it became centered. And you ever wonder why churches have like these pulpits? And if you go to like old churches where they're like way up in the air and they're right in the center, what do you think that thought meant to communicate? Something about the preaching of the Word of God is central to the life of God's people. What we've considered today. That the Bible alone is the rule and authority. You go to Roman Catholic Church, what's in the center? The Mass, the sacrifice, the altar. So we don't have an altar here today. Uh, we don't have one. Uh, we won't ever have one because that the altar uh, was on Golgotha 2,000 years ago where Jesus Christ was sacrificed for our sins. So as we come and we understand that the Bible has huge implications, one of the things that the other implication of the authority of Scripture was the worship service. John Calvin would teach the regulative principle of worship. That is, what is in is what is expressly taught, and what is out is what is, and everything that isn't commanded is out. So that's what we follow, the regulative principle of worship. That means we don't do anything in our gatherings here on Sunday mornings that is not expressly, clearly commanded in Scripture. Nothing else. It may be really, really cool. It may be kind of fun. It may be, you know, kind of neat. Might draw the kids in or something like that. But if it ain't in the Bible, we ain't doing it. 
Because the Bible is our authority. God never left his people to be ingenuity and and coming up with ways to worship him. The golden calf is evidence that, that we do a terrible job if we try to be creative in worship. So we don't need creativeness in worship. We need to do what scripture says. That's why we preach and pray and sing and read God's word and see God's word. Because that's what is commanded in the scriptures. So the centrality of the preaching of God's word because of the authority. One other aspect I want to hit on here very briefly is the necessity of Scripture. That the Scripture is necessary. Because of God's nature, that God is transcendent. That God is bigger than anyone in this room. Right? You might think you're really smart, but God's way smarter than you. Right? God is infinite in wisdom and knowledge. And because of that, finite beings will never find their way to God. Luther dealt with that very clearly. In the bondage of the will, against Erasmus is the freedom of the will. That is, you ain't finding your way to God. There's no halfway movement to God. You cannot know your way to God apart from God telling you the way. And so the necessity of Scripture. Because God's nature is such that finite beings cannot know God, the infinite God must tell us about himself. Without God, we would not know God. Without God, we would not know God. God chose, according to his own free will and his gracious purpose, to reveal himself to Adam and Eve. He walked with them and he taught them. That was his, he didn't have to do that. He could have left them in their sin, left them to stumble away. But he graciously entered in and revealed himself. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? No one. The only way we know God is because he told us about himself. Remember, the Bible is God's word to man, not man's word about God. The scriptures do not contain God's, excuse me, the scriptures contain all of God's word. This is his breathed word. And so we can give ourselves to it. We can submit our lives to it. And fourth and finally, I want you to see just briefly, consider scripture's practical nature. We could preach a whole sermon on these last few verses. We don't have time to do that. I love you guys too much. And so let's just look briefly at them. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman, the person of God, that's what it means, just look at the footnote, may be complete, equipped with every or for every good work. The Bible alone produces the fruit. We don't produce fruit and then go to God and like, look at me, I'm awesome. No, it's God's word as it cultivates in us a desire for godly things. As it works and is used by the Spirit of God. Now, I just want to consider for a moment, no other book that you can sit down with and have the author living in you, transforming you as you read it. That's amazing. God uses his word by the Spirit of God, to create His people, to transform them and shape them and to form them into righteous living, right? We see all of the profitable things here for teaching. The Bible's good for teaching, right? So I don't have a textbook up here. i got a Bible up here and some sporadically crazy notes. That's it. 
The Bible is good for reproof, right? So we are reproving one another, not with our own, like, you don't need to be doing that anymore. Don't do that. Right? Don't be reproving people with your own sense of wisdom. Reprove people, correct people with the Scriptures. That's why, if you will give yourself to maybe reading our members directory, you'll find in their prayer at the beginning that I encourage members to pray that we would regularly talk to one another with the Scriptures. Why? Because the Scriptures, not our clever, wise sayings, will help people. The Scripture alone transforms people's lives. The Scripture alone is profitable to shape and to transform. So if you're giving folks exhortation, if you're giving folks like commands like do this, don't do that, well, you better make sure that all that is grounded in the Bible. But more than that, show them in the Bible. Don't just say, you know, you, you need to be here or do this or do that. Open the Bible and allow the authority of God's word to bear upon their soul. Right? And, and, I, and again, I'm talking in the context of the local church here. I'm talking in that. So the, so the Bible is practical for doctrine, for the formation of doctrine, and it is practical for life. So what about our lives today? How can we submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture? will begin simply by obeying clear commands. Uh, There are some clear exhortations to the Christian that that, that you don't really need a PhD to figure out. Jesus said, love your neighbors as yourself. And love is defined by my love for you. Mind blown, right? I'm to love the way Jesus loved me. Well, how did Jesus love me? He died on a cross for my sin. When I hated him, he died for me. Well, that means I got it. my love is a little deeper than maybe the way the world thinks about love. So I want to love my neighbor. I want to give myself and submit myself to growing to love others, even if they hate me. That's hard. Because right? we live in a world of Facebook attack. Like it's cool to sit behind a computer and like just tear, tear people up and eat them alive. And it's so fun. It makes us feel really self-righteous and good about ourselves. But in the end, it's not what Jesus has commanded us. Love. Maybe this fall, as you're tempted to rake your leaves over your neighbor's yard or something like that, you can think about how you can love your neighbor by raking his yard. Just think about ways you can sacrificially give. This is a simple example, but, but there are so many practical ways. As a congregation, we want to understand what a church is, not because of what the Southern Baptist Convention says a church is, or, or what some you know, hip, cool teaching out there says a church is, what churches should be doing, but we want to go to the Bible and say, what is a church and what should churches be doing? Like, what did the New Testament church do? Um, they got together regularly, loved on one another, and they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. They loved one another. They submitted themselves to the regular preaching of God's word, and they prayed. That's what they did. And as they went out, they just like just couldn't shut up about Jesus. And as they went to work, they couldn't shut up about Jesus. As they went to their marketplace, they couldn't shut up about Jesus. They just talked about Jesus, not because you know they were holier than thou or they were something special, but because they knew that they were vile, wicked people who did not deserve the love of God. They knew themselves to be evil and vile and undeserving of love. 
and they wanted to go tell other undeserving evil people about Jesus. I finished our time this morning telling you about a man named William. William was born in 19, not 19, 1494. He was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. He studied at Oxford as a very gifted man. He was a leader in the Roman Catholic Church for a number of years until he began to read the Bible. He was prolific in almost an expert, if you will, in the Hebrew and Greek language. And a friend of his by the name of Erasmus compiled together a Greek New Testament. All that William had really known had been the Latin Vulgate. That's all he had really been exposed to. And then his buddy Erasmus gave him this Greek New Testament because they had a saying called ad fontes, back to the sources. They wanted to go back to the source. They didn't want to have a translation of a translation. They wanted to have the original document. And so he got a copy of some originals and he began to read it. And as he read it, he was transformed by it. The Bible began to transform and shape William's life. He was such a gifted translator that he translated the Bible into the English language, the first of its kind, though there had been other smaller forms, Wycliffe and others had translated. Here, this man named William translated the Bible into English in 1534. And on October 6th, this week would be the anniversary, on October 6th, in 1534, he was burned alive as a heretic, particularly because he had translated the Bible into the English language. It was forbidden for anyone to have a Bible other than the Latin Vulgate. But a few years after his death, the same leaders that would seek to kill him. In fact, the same king who would order the edict that no English Bible was to be translated would himself commission the translating of a Bible into English, for which 60% of it would be William's own translation. It's the Bible that many of you have in your lap this morning, the King James Version, for which our English Standard Version is a heir of. Why would Tyndale give his life to have the Bible in English? We find it almost silly that someone would die to have a Bible translated in a foreign language. Why? Because he knew the power of the Word of God. He was devoted to the Bible because he believed this verse, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is worthy of our willing submission, even if, it costs us our life. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we do pray that we as your people would submit ourselves to your word. Uh, we pray that we would come to believe and to truly live in light of this authoritative word, that to disobey scripture is to disobey you, but to obey scripture is to obey you and to reap the fruit of righteousness. So we pray today that we ourselves that corporately and individually we would be transformed by your word. Do this, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. We want to conclude our time this morning by singing a hymn that's